When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Are you troubled by strange noises in the middle of the night? Do you experience feelings of dread in your basement or attic? Have you or any of your family ever seen a spook, specter, or ghost? If the answer is yes, then don't wait another minute. Pick up your phone and call the professionals. Go Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters! Our courteous and efficient staff is on call 24 hours a day to serve all your supernatural elimination needs. We're ready to believe you! Hello movie viewers and movie lovers. My name is Tim Williams and I'm the creator and host of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. We talk about all the great and sometimes not so great movies from the 1980s. From blockbusters to cult classics to lesser known treasures we discovered on cable TV or the now defunct video rental stores from our childhood. No matter which flick we choose for each episode, we'll have a lot of fun sharing our memories, discussing our favorite scenes, and even learning some behind-the-scenes stories about the cast and crew along the way. So let's jump right into today's episode. Thanks for listening. When this 80s flick first hit the big screen, moviegoers were jump-scared by a ghostly librarian roaming the quiet aisles of a public library a multi-story marshmallow man towering over the streets of New York, and slime. Lots and lots of slime. Fortunately, four wise-cracking misfit scientists were just a phone call away, ready to take down these paranormal pests with their proton packs and ghost traps, but behind the scenes it took much more than a simple phone call to bring the poltergeist-ridden picture to life. So take a ride in Ecto-1, power up your own proton packs, and whatever you do, don't cross the streams, as Laramie Wells and I discuss Ghostbusters from 1984 on this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback. Welcome in, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the 80s Flick Flashback podcast. I'm your host, Tim Williams, and so glad to have my good friend, Mr. Laramie Wells, back with us. Who are you going to call, Laramie? Uh, I, I'm going to call your uh, your flub there. Uh, <laughs> you said four scientists. There are only three. You're right. There, there are only three. There are only You're three. Right. The others, as the others, as, the as every as man, read it. the outsider, yes. as Dan Aykroyd yes. even referred to him. Yeah. As soon as I read it, I was like, "Oop! I didn't mean to say four, but I'm gonna go with it anyway." So nice little, nice little uh, way to enter the show. So, <laughs> but looking forward to this one. I've been wanting to do Ghostbusters almost from the beginning of this podcast. Is in one. Of, it was definitely one of my top favorite movies of the 80s so uh let's jump right in when did you see ghostbusters for the very first time you know i saw it on television i mean <laughs> there can't be it i honestly i don't remember i really don't i think this movie yeah. is so ingrained in my childhood mm-hmm. that uh i can't think of a time i haven't seen it so <laughs> i honestly don't know i actually now i will say i know we're not talking about it but i do actually remember seeing ghostbusters 2 in the theaters Okay. But I know I didn't yeah. see the first one. I mean, I was uh, three when it came out. Yeah. So I know yeah. I didn't see the first one. Uh, 
So it was either I know we had it on VHS that it was recorded mm-hmm. off of you know HBO or mm-hmm. uh, some one of the premium uh, channels because no commercials or whatnot. Right. So that's probably how I first saw it. Was my dad recorded it on the VHS mm-hmm. and then I watched it. You know, wore that VHS out. Uh, yeah, watching it. So that was probably it for me. Yeah, I was when I went back and watched it. I was trying to remember. I was like. I don't think I saw this one in the theaters, which now I'm kicking myself because it was playing in the theater like last weekend. And I was like, "Ooh, I should go see it in the theater since we're going to do it this week. But I, I wasn't able to make it. Uh, but I'm pretty sure I, I want to say playing in the theaters. I don't know if they're just, you know, the, some of the theaters still doing those like five dollar classics deal for like a one, you know, for just like a weekend or whatever. And I'm assuming because the new one's coming out, and it, uh, and it was also sense, yeah. you know coming coming at the end of Halloween, uh, the end of October, they were playing it uh, at the theater. So, but I, I want to say that I didn't see this until it came out on video, because I don't think my parents wanted me to see it in the theater, and I don't know if they thought because it was going to be too scary, or I think, and this is going to be funny, but. The music music video, which was so popular because the song was such a big hit, had clips from the movie in it, and the scene with that's the dream sequence with Dan Aykroyd and the ghost over yeah. him. My parents were like, "Oh, you're not gonna go see that movie. That doesn't, you know, that, that's that's more of an adult movie, even though it was rated PG at that time." Uh, I'll be honest; so, I was much older before I realized what that was. Oh, I yeah, I, I was very much older. I mean, even as a kid, I was like, "I don't get it. it doesn't yeah, make any sense it. to what's, me." What's why is he making that face? Yeah, even Ivan Reitman made the comment on on the the commentary I was listening to. He was like, "That was actually a much a la- that was an actual full scene that they had done that they actually took out of the movie and just used a little dream sequence segment uh, for that montage. So that was actually an actual scene, not a dream sequence, but mm-hmm. an actual scene." But he said, even when he you know he showed it to his kids when they were like you know four or five, they were like, "What does that mean, Daddy?" He was like, "I'll tell you when you're older." <laughs> so so yeah so I know I saw it on on video VHS and then I'm pretty sure I'd recorded the TV version because I was doing some research and I was reading some of the alternate versions and the some of the lines that were swapped out for the TV I was like yeah I remember that line that line being said instead of this line when they took out the profanity and stuff but uh but I'm kind of like you like I've seen this movie so many times I can't think of a time when I didn't know like a lot of the one-liners and the quips, especially yeah. from Bill Murray. So, I mean, watching it again, it's like, there's so many lines I was ready to speak before. Yeah. Like I knew what line was coming next. Yeah. It's one of those, you, you just don't, you don't forget it. Like you don't watch yeah. it and go, Oh yeah, I forgot about this. Yeah. No, you know, I'm oh, all. Yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. every second of this movie. Yeah. It's like every five minutes. I'm like, Ooh, this next part's coming up. Ooh, I know what this, I know what's about to happen now. So it was great. So how long has it been since you've seen it before rewatching it for the podcast? Um, probably not that long. Uh, my daughter got really into Ghostbusters with the Kristen Wiig. Uh, yeah, the remake. Yeah, yeah. Th- with that version, and you know, of course, she watched that, and I go, "Okay, you have to see the original." <laughs> right, um, right. So we showed her the original. She loved it as well. She's excited about Afterlife um, coming, mm-hmm. and uh, so it's probably only been within the last year or so since I saw it. Okay. Again. Yeah, I, it's been a couple of years, but I remember, and I don't know if this was the same time. It might have been when they were talking about doing the remake. It hadn't been released yet. 
And I was like, oh man, I haven't seen the original in a long time. Like I've probably caught bits and pieces of it on TV. So I found, uh, I don't know if I rented it or if it was both of them were streaming, but I went back and watched Ghostbusters 1 and 2 like over a weekend. And I still enjoyed it back then. So it's probably been, the remake came out in 2016. So maybe like 2015, so about five or six years since I saw it. So, uh, but I was glad to watch it again and even... You know, I've watched it. I've kind of watched it twice. I watched it once the other day, and then I watched it with the commentary today, right before we recorded. So it's still pretty fresh in my mind, but it's still fun to watch. Such oh, a good yeah. movie. Love it. All right, well, let's jump into story origin and pre-production. And as I've said on a couple of uh, episodes that we've done here recently, thanks to the new show on Netflix called "The Movies That Made Us," <laughs> a lot of this stuff is covered in a little bit more detail, or in our different perspectives, I guess. So uh, you can definitely check out, not once again, not a sponsor, but Netflix. Give me a call. We'll, we'll work something out. I'm sure I'd love to uh, promote your show even more. So, uh, But it's, it's got a really cool backstory. Ghostbusters was actually inspired by Dan Aykroyd's fascination with and belief in the paranormal. This was inherited from his father who wrote the book A History of Ghosts, his mother who claimed she had seen ghosts, a grandfather who experimented with using radios to contact the dead, and a great-grandfather a renowned spiritualist. In 1981, he read an article in the Journal of the American Society for Physical Research, which gave him the idea of trapping ghosts. Aykroyd was also drawn to the idea of modernizing the comedic ghost films of the mid-20s, I'm sorry, of the mid-20th century made by teams like Abbott and Costello with Hold That Ghost, Bob Hope with The Ghost Breakers, and The Bowery Boys with their movie Ghost Chasers in 1951. So Aykroyd wrote the script intending to star in the movie alongside Eddie Murphy and his close friend and fellow Saturday Night Live alum John Belushi before they led, before John Belushi's accidental death in March 1982. Aykroyd recalled writing one of Belushi's lines when producer and talent agent Bernie Burlstein called to inform him of Belushi's passing. He turned to another SNL former castmate Bill Murray who agreed to join the project without an explicit agreement which is how he often worked. Aykroyd pitched this concept to Brillstein as three men who chase ghosts and included a sketch of the quote-unquote marshmallow man. He likened them to normal pest control workers saying that calling a ghostbuster was just like getting rats removed. So Aykroyd believed Ivan Reitman was a logical choice to direct based on his successes with films like Animal House and Stripes. Reitman was aware of the film's outline while Belushi was still a prospective cast member and it took place in the future with many groups of intergalactic Ghostbusters. He felt it would have cost something like $200 million to make, so Ackroyd's original 70-80 to 80 page script treatment was more serious in tone and intended to be more scary than funny. The movies that made us talked a lot about this, about, you know, Ackroyd's belief in Supernatural, like this isn't just something he was just kind of writing for fun, like he believed a lot of the stuff, and that's why his original script was a lot more... Maybe not as much scary, but much more serious in tone. I know you just recently watched the episode. Anything you want to add to that? I, I think Dan Aykroyd is a very funny individual, mm-hmm. very talented comedic genius. Right. But this movie being set in like a futuristic space kind of yeah. adventure, yeah. Uh, um, it... it <laughs> It harkens into my head. This movie could have been the original Pluto Nash. That's yeah, what, yeah. what that kind of, but I actually remember, uh, it was like, a a syndicated show, I think in the nineties, mm-hmm. it was called Sci Factor. 
and it was hosted by Dan Aykroyd. Oh, really? Okay, I don't remember yeah. that. Yeah, and it was like, uh, I think it was kind of like a, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of a show that it would be based on. Kind of like The X-Files meets Unsolved Mysteries, so it was oh, okay. All, okay. all fictionalized stuff, mm-hmm. but it was, I think, loosely based off of real stories. Okay. And so you had Dan Aykroyd introduce it, and then you went in, and it was like this team of paranormal uh, experts who study stuff. So I always knew he had that interest mm-hmm. uh, in that stuff. But, um, but yeah, very fascinating to see that connection there. But, yeah, definitely do not want to ever know what the original draft was <laughs> of this movie. No, I'm not going to dig that one, like, you know, scour the internet to find original copies of the screenplay. So, But they did have to do some tinkering with it. So Reitman met with Aykroyd at a delicatessen in Los Angeles and explained his concept would be impossible to make. He suggested setting it entirely on Earth would make the extraordinary elements more humorous, and if they focused on realism from the beginning, then the Marshmallow Man would be more believable, believable by the end. Reitman also wanted to detail the Ghostbusters' origins before starting their business, saying this was the beginning of the 80s, everyone was going into business. So following the meeting, the pair met Harold Ramis at Burbank Studios. Reitman had worked with him on previous films and believed he could better execute the tone he he intended for the script than Aykroyd. Reitman also felt Ramis would portray a Ghostbuster. After he read the script, Ramis joined the project immediately. And is Harold Ramis not the most... I don't know if, if this is, but I, I honestly think that Egon mm-hmm. is the most like character-driven. Uh, he's he's the one you remember the yeah. most. Yeah, I honestly think. Yeah, um, I, you know his his hair, <laughs> glasses, the way he talks, uh, a lot of the lines he has. Um, you know, in this one, it's the. Uh, it's uh, Peter saying, you know, I stopped you from drilling that yeah, hole in your head. Yeah. And he goes, and it would have worked too if you hadn't have yeah. stopped me. <laughs> um, and even though this is the other, I always remember in Ghostbusters 2 when he talks about that he had a slinky mm-hmm. once, but he straightened yeah. it. Um, so. He's definitely, he he's the most unique character of the three. It's funny because I think about Aykroyd now and a lot of the roles he's played, I'd say now, like he's been in a lot of movies recently, but like the movies he's done since then where he becomes more of the straight man and not as goofy, where in this one he's really kind of like the kid. He's the he's the grown-up kid, kind of the silly yeah. the silly one. And they and they all even in the commentary they said he's the heart of the movie, like you know, Aykroyd is the heart oh, of yeah. the of the team and you see that and then of course, uh Bill Murray is the He's the the wisecracker. He's the smart aleck. He's, he's Bill, Bill Murray. Murray. Yeah, he's like playing himself. But yeah, you're right. Harold Ramis is like the he is the true straight man, and he's the most unique of the characters in the sense of like you can't really figure him out. You know, you don't know what he's going to say or what he's going to do. But he's also the one that's you know uh, giving you all of the uh, explanations and all. He's using all the the science terms and the jargon that. He's, yeah, he's the one that I think makes it believable. Yeah, yeah. Um, not only mm-hmm. to us, but to the reality of yeah. the the movie. You know, I think it's the things he says that makes people actually think, okay, this right, is legit right. Stuff. He's speaking complete nonsense and words that we would never know the meaning to, but he says them with such believability that you're like, oh, well, sure, yeah, we can trap a we can trap ghosts with these 
some kind of laser kind of because they never really explain yeah. how they never the explain. yeah they exactly to, which I kind of like better because I'd rather them not explain it than you know than than have like a five minute exp, you know exposition of this is the science mm-hmm. that, that tells you how this all works no and especially as a kid watching it you didn't care about that stuff anyway Ooh, colorful wavy things and now these messages. <sighs> what seems to be the problem, pal? There's just so much pain in the world, so many issues. I don't think I can bear it. Well, friendo, it sounds like you could use a dose of pop culture roulette. Pop culture roulette? What's that? Some sort of pop culture themed podcast or something? That's right, sonny boy. When hope seems far, dive into some PCR. But I already get my entertainment news from Variety. Huh, that's pretty good. If you're a chucklehead, PCR gives you news you need, condensed, unfiltered, and raw, from three nerds who know a little something about something. Wow, okay, sign me up. That's the spirit. Pop Culture Roulette. New episodes every Monday, available on all major podcast directories. Yeah, so of course they had to tinker the script, but, you know, it's also been talked about how much was ad-libbed. So, Ackroyd and Ramus filled the script for Ghostbusters with jokes, but the production ended up deviating greatly from how it was written. The writers expected this since they were both from a background of improv comedy, and so were a lot of the co-stars. There are ad-libbed lines in almost every scene, especially in the scenes with Bill Murray, who's like a joke cannon. One of my favorites is the party scene in which Lewis, played by Rick Moranis, mingles with his guests commenting on such hilariously mundane tap topics as the price of salmon, was shot in one continuous take and almost completely improvised by Rick Moranis. Which a, th- a way to go to those uh, yeah. extras. Oh, exactly. Exactly. But that was great. That's one of my favorite scenes. Rick Moranis is probably one of my favorite characters in this, and every scene he's in is just just pure gold. His, his lines and stuff are great. So I got some mineral water. You want to come back with some little mineral water? <laughs> uh, and I, I want to know, you know, you're talking about how much of the script was improvised versus how much mm-hmm. was actually written. I want to know if the bit about how he's constantly locking himself out of his apartment yeah. and see, was, like, that's yeah. something I don't know if it was Rick Moranis choosing yeah. that or if it Well, it's funny because he is the key the master, but he's always locked out of his apartment, which I think is... A, a, you know, yeah. a great nod. If that, I'm sure it's intentional. But yeah, whose idea was that? Was that Moran? It's like, hey, wouldn't it be funny if I'm always locked in my apartment, even though I've become the key master at the end? So, I think it was great. Well, let's let's jump into casting. So we are kind of already talking about some of the people anyway. So, of course, Murray was considered essential to Ghostbusters' potential success, but he was known not for committing to projects until late. Uh, the producer agreed to fund Murray's passion project called the Razor's Edge, believing that if it failed. It would lose little money, but he hoped the gesture would secure Murray's commitment to Ghostbusters. Uh, rumored to be looked at for the role as well was Michael Keaton, Chevy Chase, Tom Hanks, Robin Williams, Steve Gutenberg, and Richard Pryor. Well, yeah. Eddie Murphy. I mean, it said that the even though a lot of people think Winston mm-hmm. is the character that Eddie Murphy was... Eddie Murphy, the role Dan Aykroyd has said was supposed to be yeah. who Peter Vickman's character. Right. He was supposed to be the lead. Because the casting uh, casting director is actually the one who says, you know, we looked at Eddie Murphy mm-hmm. for the role of Winston, and then Dan Aykroyd comes in, he goes, well, Eddie Murphy was actually, his role was gotcha, filled gotcha. by Bill Murray. Um, that he was mm-hmm. supposed to be the comedic lead. 
Chevy Chase. I I I think the the casting of Chevy Chase would have been before his oh, fallout definitely. with Saturday Night yeah. Live. Well, they said that you know this this got started early, like eighty one, eighty two. I mean, it took it took time to get it kind of all put together. So in the initial talks, I'm sure. Uh, but even I think. I mean, I don't know a lot about that story, but I would kind of have a feeling that Dan Aykroyd would maybe have a little yeah. animosity against Chevy Chase for the way that he yeah, left true. Saturday Night Live. And even, and even Murray, and I, I think know, I remember, because we haven't covered Caddyshack yet, but I'm pretty sure, like they talked about, there's only one scene in Caddyshack where Bill Murray and Chevy Chase are in a scene together. And they had to film that scene because they were two of the biggest stars at the time. But neither one of them really liked each other, mm-hmm. and they didn't want to do the scene, but they did it anyway for the sake of the movie. So, yeah, yeah, because Bill Murray is the right. one who replaced Jimmy right. Chase. I'll tear it out. So, yeah. yeah, I'm sure there was a lot of that. So, uh, speaking of Egon, so you know he eventually took the role because he said that he had ri- he realized as he was writing the script that he was writing the perfect role for himself. But they had already looked at Christopher Walken, John Lithgow, Christopher Lloyd, and Jeff Goldblum uh, for playing Egon, which you can tell from those actors what kind of character they wanted him to be. But I think he was perfect, like you said, for that role. Goldblum probably would have been a a close second. Yeah, Yeah. I think. I think he could have. I don't know, though. The Goldblum of the 80s is different than the Goldblum we have now. True, true. Where he's... Goldblum... Goldblum almost has become a character tr- caricature of, of himself. himself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which you could almost say the same thing about Walken. Very true. Yeah, yeah. they've yeah. kind of, they've kind of, uh, they've kind of grown into what people expect them to be instead of you know I say about being themselves, but they've, you know, it's kind of like I've heard people talk about Stan Lee, like the Stan Lee that you see in the Marvel movies and Stan Lee you would meet at the conventions is not the Stan Lee that who he was you know, to his wife and his kids. Like he was not that he was like a polar opposite, but he was just like when he would go meet the fans, like, Oh, it's time to be Stan Lee. Now he, there was a certain persona that he would, mm-hmm. he would put on, but it was a persona that he said, that's who the fans want to see. They don't want to see the dad, Stan Lee. They don't want to see the, they want to see Stan Lee who makes the comic book. So anyway, figure that add that in since you're the moving panels host. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we talked about Ernie Hudson, uh, went through five auditions for the character of Winston Zeddemore. Uh So I'm going to skip over this because it's all talked about how, you know, <laughs> which you've already, you know, taken out. So, uh, oh, the Eddie Murphy stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But he did say in a, in a 2015 article for Entertainment Weekly, he said, I love the character and he's got some great lines, but I felt the guy. I'm sorry. I felt the guy was just kind of there. I love the movie. I love the guys. I'm very thankful to Ivan for casting me. I'm very thankful that fans appreciate the Winston character, but it's always been very frustrating. Kind of a love-hate thing, I guess. What Hudson is glossing over is that he was a last-minute stand-in for Eddie Murphy, who backed out after getting the lead in Beverly Hills Cop. Understandably, they shrunk the role after Superstar Murphy dropped out. Which we were saying... Yeah, yeah, I don't, but yeah, you watch that movies that made us. That's yeah. not what they say at all. Yeah. Um. So Winston, I, I remember this from the 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 series. Uh, Winston was supposed to pop up very early in the right movie, right, and then he doesn't. And apparently, it was more of when they got Bill Murray, they shot as much as they could with 
Murray, mm-hmm. and he started to overlap some of the stuff that was meant for Winston. Gotcha, gotcha. And so it pushed Winston back. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do agree with Ernie Hudson. I do think Winston's just kind of shoehorned yeah. in. Yeah. And honestly, if it probably wasn't for the sequel, and if it wasn't for the real Ghostbusters cartoon, mm-hmm. Winston wouldn't be as, I think, remembered of a character. Yeah. As he is. Well, even because, the movie, yeah. Even yeah. the movie poster doesn't have him on it for Ghostbusters 1. I mean, of course, mm-hmm. they have the iconic, just the Ghostbusters symbol, but there's one with like. Aykroyd, Murray, and Ramus. Of course, they were bigger names at that time. Of course, you're going to put them on the poster, but it's like a scene from the from the finale. You know, the big fight with the uh, Stay Puft Marshmallowland, and there's no Ernie Hudson in that on that on that on that on that poster. So, yeah. yeah. But uh, but yeah, I agree. I think his character is lasting. And they, and they talked about their, the scene where. Uh, him and Aykroyd are in the car and Aykroyd gives the great thing about, you know, he quotes the Bible and, and mm-hmm. uh, Reitman was talking about, you know, that's one of his favorite scenes. He said, and it was great because it gave Winston, it was a great Character. scene. It was a, yeah, it was a great scene yeah. for him to kind of show who he was in the team that he said, I'm really glad we were able to get that scene and use that scene. He said, and it's very serious. It's not filled with a bunch of jokes like everything else. It's a very grounded and kind of emotional scene. And he said, so that it, it allowed he said it gave Ernie a good chance to shine in the little that we, we had for him to do, he said, which was unfortunate because he's such a great actor and he's a great guy. We yeah. wanted to give him more to do, but it just it just didn't pan out that way. So, uh, But yeah, but also Gregory Hines and Reginald Vell Johnson were considered for the role as well. But if you noticed, Vell Johnson, Johnson, he yeah. makes his big screen debut in a blink and you'll miss it cameo as the guard at the jail scene. <laughs> yeah. Playing uh, Sergeant Al Powell, I have, <laughs> I have uh, locked in. That's where he that got started. He well, how yeah, did he, how did he end up in L.A. though? He, you know, and look, and another connection, he was buying Twinkies, <laughs> and there's a whole conversation it's about Twinkies about yeah. Twinkies. Exactly. So, hey, yeah. No, the, he he gets up. He move. He moves. He goes to uh, Los Angeles. Gets a job as a cop there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His, his wife is pregnant. Um. So. He's, she's got a craving for Twinkies. Yeah, uh, he's picking up the Twinkies, and then you know, uh, all the events happen at the Nakatomi Plaza, and he can't handle it anymore. So he moves to Chicago, um, becomes a cop in Chicago, and uh, that's he, he realizes that all that matters is family. Right, and he, um, so yeah, and his has a neighbor named Urkel. So yeah, there you go. I think I think you found your next great screenplay. You know, you should just you know the the, the, the yeah. <laughs> The early yeah, years the, of, of Powell. And, the secret you know. life of Sergeant Al Powell. There you go. There you go. Not the only diehard connection in this movie, though. So Yeah, we'll get, we're getting there. We're getting there. I know. That's why I'm not saying it. <laughs> so uh, Daryl Hannah and Julia Roberts are rumored to audition for the role of Dana Barrett, but it was Sigourney Weaver who attracted the filmmaker's attention. There was some resistance to casting her because of the generally serious role she had played in Alien and The Year of Leaving Dangerously earlier. Weaver revealed her comedic background, developed at the Yale School of Drama, and began walking on all fours and howling like a dog during her audition. (laughs) It was her suggestion that Dana become possessed by Zool. Reitman said this solved issues with the last act by giving the characters personal stakes in the events. Weaver also changed the character's occupation from that of a model to a musician, yeah. saying that Dana can be somewhat strict, 
but you know she has a soul because she plays the cello. You were going to say something? Yeah, because Reitman didn't know. he. They had this thing in the script yeah. with the gatekeeper and the key master. Right. And he, he was like, what do I do with these two? <laughs> um, right. And so it was the, my thing is, though, you talk about comedic chops, and this is nothing at Scrawny Weaver. Scrawny mm-hmm. Weaver is amazing. Right. But Dana doesn't have to be comedic no, for this. No, no. Like, she is playing it straight. Exactly. She needs to play it straight. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, now, not saying Sigourney Weaver doesn't have comedic chops. Galaxy Quest exactly. Yep, demonstrates yeah. that. But in this, I don't know why it was a worry about her having comedic chops, because the character and the role, based off of what you see in the movie, mm-hmm. it wasn't required. Yeah. And she said she played it that way. She didn't play it for laughs, even though she, you know, she did that for the audition. But she was she she wanted the character to be what kind of grounded. She wanted to be stay grounded in reality. You know, the the ghosts are there. They're in this paranormal ghost world and trying to get us to believe it. And she was like, she just wanted to be that. You know, you know, this can't be real kind of character, but still be yeah. you know likable. Which makes it so much better when she is possessed. Yeah. Um, Because going back to talking about Rick Moranis, there's not a huge difference in character uh, between... It just gets... Yeah. Yeah, when he's possessed versus before. It gets a little enhanced, I think, or a little... It becomes more exaggerated, maybe. Yeah. I mean, he... Now, he does play, I think, the the fact that... He he plays it more the fact that he's a dog... Right, than right. Sigourney Weaver does, whereas yeah. Sigourney Weaver plays it more like she's a demon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they they do play the the devil dogs mm-hmm. differently once they are possessed. Which, you know, if you wanted to get into it from a film standpoint, you'd go, "Well, that doesn't make any sense because they're the same, mm-hmm. pretty much the same thing. Why would they act differently?" Right. Um. But eh. I don't care. It's great. It's still yeah, a great movie. I know. I'm not here to pick this part of this movie apart at all. No, so, not not at all. Right. Well, not even the special effects, which no. I'm sure we'll get into. Oh later. gosh, yes, yeah. Okay. So even so, we're talking about Rick Moranis. Let's go back to that. So John Candy was actually offered the role of Lewis Tully. Candy told Reitman he did not understand the character and suggested portraying Tully with a German accent and multiple German shepherds. The filmmakers felt there was hmm. already enough dogs in the film. So, Candy chose not to pursue the role. Uh, so, Reitman had previously worked with Rick Moranis and sent him the script. He accepted the role an hour later. He actually went back and thanked John Candy for turning it down because he loved it so much. Uh, yep. Yeah. Uh, Sandra Bernhard turned down the role uh, of the Ghostbusters secretary, Janine Melnitz, which went to Annie Potts. As she arrived on her first day of filming, Reitman rushed Potts into the current scene she quickly changed out of her street clothes and borrowed a pair of glasses worn by the set designer, which her character subsequently wore throughout the film. So thought that was great. The glasses were actually yeah. were a big part of her her character, I think. So yeah, and uh, Sandra Bernhardt. I I don't know if I've ever seen anything, and I'll be honest, I don't know if I've ever seen her in anything that I wasn't just annoyed. Yeah, I agree. So, yeah, I don't think um, it was a good it was a good choice to not have her in yeah, that role for sure. Any Great. Yeah, she's perfect. She's perfect. So uh, one of the characters I know that Laramie's can't wait to talk about, William Atherton, was chosen for the role of Walter Peck after he had appeared in the Broadway play Broadway. <laughs> Peck was described as akin to Margaret Dumont's role as the comedic foil to the Marx Brothers. Atherton said, I can't be Except funny. More, more of a jerk. Yeah, 
Yeah. But like punchable face. That's the greatest line. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he started this role, which you could say he is he, he the same person he is and he became yeah, a reporter. Yeah, it's the same thing. It's he, the same thing. Yeah. He he's so he's so shamed by what he's done as this EPA agent that uh he leaves and goes to Los Angeles and um changes his name to Thornburg <laughs> and uh becomes a reporter. There you but go. He's the same same jerk same that he character. was. Same character. Same character. Yeah. He's he's great in this. Just the great the great, you know, antagonist. Yeah. And I, how much you bet how much you bet he's the nicest guy in the world? Oh yeah. Like I would almost guarantee you he is probably the nicest guy in the world. I don't know anything about him uh personally. Well, yeah. But... So uh, Reitman had a lot to say about him <laughs> in the commentary because that he is an, he is a nice guy he said but after this movie came out he was like he he said I ran into him a couple years later and he was so mad at me he was like I can't go anywhere without people like yeah being you know being mad yeah. at me and you know saying awful things to me about how I was in this movie I was like yeah but you you went from this well I guess it wasn't directly from 84 to what 88 4 years later you still you played the same character again uh it's just so good at yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even Biodome. Like you just <laughs> you jump into the nineties. He does it again in Biodome. Right. Yeah, he definitely got typecast, for sure. So Alright, so Gozer was originally going to be played by Paul Rubens, who we just talked <laughs> about in your episode of Mystery Men, so little connection there. Uh but Paul Rubens turned down the role. In the original script, Gozer took on the form of Ivo Shander, the ghost building's architect who started the original Gozer cult who actually resembled a pale, slender, unremarkable man in a business suit. So Gozer's final form was described as a David Bowie meets Grace Jones type. <laughs> I can see it. So, uh, But once this idea was abandoned for the film, Gozer's role went to Yugoslavian model and actress Slavica Jovan, which I'm sure I said incorrectly. Zoom type. Yeah. Uh, but, and then Patty Edwards was uncredited as the voice of Gozer, dubbing over Jovan's strong Slavic accent. But uh, also learned that Ivan Reitman was the voice of uh, Dana when she's the demon, and also the voice of Slimer. So, ah, very nice. Yeah. Which uh, I don't know if you you probably planned this later, but I'm gonna go ahead and mention mm-hmm. it because we already brought up Belushi. Uh, Slimer yeah. was made to look like Belushi, mm-hmm. not to be funny, but as a tribute. Right. Oh yeah, yeah, Belushi. yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, though he's never referred to in the script, the green ghost in the hotel was called Onion Head by the crew because of its horrid smell. A scene where the ghost haunts two newlyweds showed the charis- showed this characteristic, but was cut. Contrary to popular belief, the name Slimer, quote-unquote, is not used in the film, but was created for the real Ghostbusters cartoon in 1986. Based off Vinkman's line of, in the film, of course, he's slimy. Uh, the ghost was only ever referred to as Onion Head and the ghost of John Belushi by the cast and crew before the creation of the cartoon. So, And they said the gluttonous eating with the scene with all the hot dogs was a homage to Belushi's cafeteria scene in Animal House. Animal House, yeah, where yeah. he puts the plate right up on his face. Mm-hmm. Um, and just another random trivia, uh, Real Ghostbusters, Slimer is voiced by Howie Mandel. Oh, yeah, yeah. Did a lot of voice work back after. then for sure. So Oh yeah. Um I mean Gizmo. You talked about yeah. Gremlins. Um but going back to Gozer, I've, and this also goes back into the John Candy playing Lewis, uh the storyboard 
were actually drawn with John Candy. Oh yeah, in the spot, and they had uh, Gozer in the suit and tie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, I think I've seen you, those. I part of me wonders though. Like I was fine with the the model that was playing it. It, mm-hmm. it wasn't. They she's didn't not need in, a big actor. Yeah, she's not in it enough to, for it to be a big, big role. But what was the deal with the suit looking like it had what, bubbles on it, <laughs> or whatever that was supposed to be? Yeah. Like that, that didn't make any sense. But now that you said that, I actually didn't know um, what the actual plan was for Gozer. But to make it the architect, that ties in so much better. Yeah, to the the story, the, story, the way yeah. that yeah. Because mm-hmm. you got all that with Ray discovering mm-hmm. about the architecture of the building, and um, and it's it's so weird the the way the movie plays out there at the end is they walk up the steps, which is one of my favorite scenes. Mm-hmm. I know we'll talk about those that in a minute. Um, they get to Dana's apartment, and then there's just a staircase in Dana's apartment, which somehow takes them to the roof, right? Right. Even though when we saw them walk into Dana's apartment and you get that shot of them, they're clearly like another five, <laughs> six stories before you'd hit the roof. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, architecture definitely didn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. It, And then it changes from night to day, which I know I guess it's supposed to be like the cloud over the building makes it dark. Yeah. But, and, you know, it just, that always, I think as a kid I didn't understand that I was like, why is it nighttime and now it's it's not you know that that kind of stuff so so another uh, little cameo if you didn't know the tall woman dancing with Lewis at the party was played by Jean Kasem the wife of Casey Kasem Casey Kasem yep so which I knew she looked familiar but I didn't know who she was I was like maybe she was like a model yeah, I couldn't have told or you that something either. back then which I think she was a model I think that's how they met or whatever so what about the fact that the you can talk about just random cameos uh, the girl that is being flirted on by uh, Vinkman in the opening, mm-hmm. uh, she would later go on in, I wanted to say it was the Very Brady Christmas. She actually replaces the actress that played Cindy Brady. Oh, I didn't know that. I mean, I, yeah, yeah I, I knew she looked familiar, and I didn't I didn't look her up when I was doing the research, but I know Reitman made the comment in the commentary that she had made several movies after this uh so she she did have a little bit of a career afterwards, but yeah, I don't know if I remember her from other movies. I remember her from television. Maybe that's she what it was. was a, yeah, she was a reoccurring character on Charles in Charge. Yeah, that's that. probably where I remember. Yeah, remember her from for sure. So I think we think we covered the cast pretty well, or you know the main main ones. I did read that you know talk about cameos. That was Larry King's uh, feature film debut. His <laughs> little. Little part, you huh. know. I think, but I think even back then he was only like big in New York. I don't think he was national at that point. So, well, and I mean, if you want to just throw out random stuff, I mean, the librarian mm-hmm. from the opening, Alice oh, yeah, Drummond, she's been in tons I mean, of stuff. Lo- yeah, tons of stuff. Always a a very memorable character. Um, you know, Awakenings, mm-hmm. uh, Two Wong Fu. Oh, yeah. I know she's one of the yeah, townspeople because they dollar all up. Uh, I remember that. Um, and then she's Ray Finkel's mom in yeah, uh, yes, uh, Ace Ventura. Yes. Can't forget that one. Yeah. Can't. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yep. A lot, a lot of big people in this one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's talk about favorite scenes, most iconic scenes. 
I'll let you go first. Well, okay, so... Start with Iconic if you want. All right, Iconic, um, I, you, I mean, you got to go Stay Puffed. Um, I was going to say, I mean, that, that I, yeah, uh, it has to be the most Iconic song. Yeah, you have to go Stay Puffed. I don't know of anything that, that can't be more. Um, favorite scenes, uh, there's so many. The movie, the entire movie, beginning to end, <laughs> from the Paramount logo all the way to them waving to the crowd. Um, right. No, uh, I mean, the, the library scene at the beginning is one that always stuck with me. It is so creepy mm-hmm. and eerie. Um, but I think some of my favorites, when they're in the ballroom going after Slimer, whatever you want to call him, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll call him Slimer, uh, when, when Venkman does the tablecloth. And he's like, yes, and I always the want flowers to try this. are still on the table. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that's one of my favorites. Um, and then I love, I love the, uh, the, the owner outside. I promise you it's going to be perfect. You know, yeah. the, the room will be ready, ready when, when your you're event arrive. and you hear all the yeah. noise in the back. Yeah. It's like, oh my gosh. But yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I, yeah. I think I, I will, I'll let you go. The uh, iconic is definitely stay puff is number one. Number two is probably, Vinkman and Slimer, the initial, you know, him, he's coming at me, Ray, he's coming at me. And then, you know, you find him on the floor. He's slimy. I mean, that's, that, that's, yeah, that's, those, those are, I think those are kind of neck and neck for me as far as iconic. So see, and I just keep popping, uh, lines into my head. I mean, you know, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's iconic lines for sure. Dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Those lines, the, the, the Twinkie, you know, and. Yeah. Tell him about the Twinkie. Uh, what about, about the, the Twinkie? Twinkie? Yeah. You know, the, One of my favorites is Back Off Man. I'm a scientist. Yeah. <laughs> um, Which I think we used to say, like, that was, like, one of the first, I think, like, pop culture lines that we would, I would, we would, we would say to each other as friends, like, before, you know, I guess, because we've been doing it our whole lives, but, like, that's one of the first lines I remember, like, saying to my friends and that being, like, an inside joke with us. As as kids, after we saw it, yeah. I mean, I I, I don't curse, and obviously we're not going to curse on this show. No, but uh, you know the we came, we saw, we saw, we kicked yeah. its butt. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly, um, exactly. The which again, that was another improvised mm-hmm. line. Uh, yeah, and I think yeah, I want to say there. Yeah, Wright Moon said that they were talking about when that scene came up, and he said um, that he remembered that line because they had done like 10 takes and it was like the three, like Aykroyd, Murray and Ramos would go into the room and they were just like, okay, just come up with something funny to say when you come out. And he said, out of the 10, there were eight, they were all hysterical. And then it became a challenge of which one is the best out of the eight. Uh, And then he talked about later on the rooftop scene, there were a lot of lines there. And he said, the cool thing with working with them was, uh, and Ramos talked about because he was on the Ramos was in the on the commentary and he said, well, the second city training was he said uh, they were always coming up with lines for each other, and he said, and then it would be well, who's going to say the line? They would come up with great lines like who's going to say the line? And uh, Reitman was like, it was interesting because they were always writing great lines for for the other person. They were never writing great lines for themselves. And Ramos said, well, that's we were turned that way in Second City. Second city, you're trained. Make if you make everybody else look good, yeah. every everybody looks good yeah. instead of you trying to be, you know, make yourself better yeah. than everybody else. And that's why the first rule that was, of improv is yes and. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so I just thought that was cool. His like, you know, he said they would 
they would kind of get in this huddle for like 15 minutes and they come, okay, what if we do this? And he's like, you, and he said, I never knew who came up with what he said. And, you know, before working with them, I thought, well, the guy who's getting to say the line is the one that came up with it. And he said, most of the time it wasn't, they were giving each other better lines to, to, to make the scene better. That's what so makes it such a great, great ensemble movie. Exactly. Um, but exactly. yeah, but you mentioned Harold Ramis. Another, uh, he gets a great line mm. there towards the end because Ray, when someone asks if you're a God, you say <laughs> you yes. Say yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, and then of course at the end about the crossing the streams, you said no crossing the streams. You said that was a bad thing, right? Yeah. yeah so, but uh, again, going let's go back to scenes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The the uh, when Dana brings home the groceries and the eggs mm-hmm. and all that. Oh yeah, I mean that's oh, still yeah, yeah. a great scene. Like that's a great mm-hmm. special effect. It, yep, it's a good one. And that's where you first see the Stave Puff marshmallows. Yes, she has marshmallows next to the thing, which they said. They had planned to do like an actual commercial with actually see the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man in a smaller version, but that was going to take too much time and cost too much money. And then they were just going to put a big billboard in one of the scenes and they said, nope, we're just going to, we're just going to make this fake, you know, bag of, uh, or, you know, make our own little brand of, uh, of marshmallows and just put them on the counter. And like, there you, there you go. There's AC Stay Puft before. Right. Um, Which I don't, I I think it was much later before I realized those were Stay Puft marshmallows. Oh, I'm sure. I think the, it was in that for me scene. too. Yeah, I didn't realize. Yeah, that were, I, I had no clue what the Stay Puft thing was a reference to when it, he pops up at the end. I think when the trailer came out because they didn't show him very for very long, and we always I always thought it was the the Michelin Man, which was a big you know commercial or, you know icon. So I didn't understand what the Stay Puft marshmallow would be, but it was kind of like the Pillsbury Doughboy and. The Michelin Man kind of mushed together in my mind as a kid. Mm. So, those are two brands that I was more aware of. And now, these messages. Comic books have been around for almost a century. And in the last two decades, we've finally gotten to see many of these characters brought to life in movies and on TV. On the Moving Panels podcast, we discuss movies and TV shows based on, inspired by, and adapted from the world of comic books. Join me and my guests as we discuss both the good and the bad from Marvel, DC, and even some of the lesser-known comic book companies. Learn what is and isn't from the comics, as well as our nerdy review of the movie or show. New episodes drop every Monday, and you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. So join us for Moving Panels, and I'll see you on the other side of the page. What's up, dudes? I'm Jerry D. of Totally Rad Christmas, the podcast that talks all things Christmas in the 80s. Toys, movies, specials, music, books, fashion, and fads. If it was gnarly during Christmas in the 80s, he's got it covered. Wait, is there a lot of things to talk about for the 80s and Christmas? Well, you got the movie giants like Christmas Vacation, Scrooged, and A Christmas Story. There are TV specials like Muppet Family Christmas, Claymation Christmas Celebration, and a Garfield Christmas Special. Plus classics shown every year. You also jam out to Last Christmas, Do They Know It's Christmas, and Christmas in Hollis. But most of all, it was a time for the most bodacious, best-selling Christmas toys ever, like He-Man, G.I. Joe, Transformers, and Cabbage Patch Kids. Yes, them too. We cover them all, plus much more, including standard segments like Hap Hap Happiest Memory, Gagging with the Spoon, The Other Half of the Battle, and Chant with the Littles. So tune in to Totally Rad Christmas everywhere you get your podcasts. Turn the clock back and dive into those warm and fuzzy memories. Later, dudes! (laughs) 
while we're here, let's talk a little bit about the special effects because some of it works, some of it doesn't work as well. I'm not going to say it doesn't work, but some of it just, you no. know, didn't age no. as well, especially in HD yeah. uh, as they the would have liked. And they talked about the commentary. The, the apartment, that's yeah. horrible. Yeah. It's horrible. Yeah, Ryan was talking about like that scene especially. He was like, you know, there's a lot, you know, the scene where Lewis throws the coat in the room and it lands on the the mm-hmm. dog's the demon dog's head, which is a great a great shot. He said, and then it was like, this next scene is not going to no. be as good. Yeah. <laughs> just when it when it runs out the door, he's like, you've got the puppet. He said, the puppeting the puppet the looks puppet, great. Yeah, the puppet is great. He said, but everything else just looks yeah so bad now. Oh, and he said, but he said, but they were rushed. They were rushed to get this done. So mm-hmm. he said, a lot of the effects. He said, when they showed it to the test audiences, there were no special effects. There were there were only a few. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said, but they still loved it. And he said, you know, they just they just didn't have the time to get them as as good as they wanted to. So a lot of that looks really bad now. Uh, Stay Puff doesn't look horrible. No, I don't think any of Stay Puff looks that bad. No, um, it's really the those devil dogs that are mm-hmm. the worst. They yeah, it's just horrible. them. Them in motion looks so bad, and yeah. it's the animatronics. Which and he makes the comment about between one and two is when digital. They thought it was going to be like a slow moving transition to like digital effects, and he said no, it happened like very quickly between making of one and two. He said if we'd have waited two more years to do Ghostbusters, the effects would have been much more digital and and looked yeah. a little bit better. So, I, I think most of them still work though. Oh yeah, you know the the actual beam out of the proton packs as cartoonish as they look it works mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it works uh the ghosts all look yeah good. the ghost effects were great yeah the ghost effects look good uh, i think the only one i don't like is uh slimers uh fly towards the screen at the end yeah because yeah no one acknowledges it <laughs> uh and he dips down yeah. Above the crowd, so you yeah. would think somebody saw it. Right, him. it seemed like that um, was a, that was very much like an afterthought. Like let's just throw this oh, at the I'm end sure. just for something yeah. fun. Uh, um, yeah, I love how it just has the quintessential uh, hero saves the day at the end shot mm-hmm. of just panning around with all the people. Um, also, very reminiscent of Die Hard. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you just pan. But yeah, the special effects, the practical stuff was great. Yeah, the yeah. books moving in the library mm-hmm. on the, strings. Yeah, <laughs> um, you know, I even thought it was cool the screen when uh, Egon is examining Lewis, and yeah, yeah, the shot on the screen is of the the demon dog, mm-hmm. which is what I'm always going to call them. Yeah, uh, yeah, and as Rick Moranis is moving his head, the demon dog's head moves exactly mm-hmm. the same way, and mm-hmm. I'm just going. How did they pull that off? <laughs> like, did Rick Moranis have to time it? Mm-hmm. Like, how in the world did they pull that off? And then, like I said, the the groceries and the eggs yeah. popping oh, out. Yeah, yeah. The practical effects are mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, and Stay Puff, I think, looks good. You can obviously tell it's miniature yeah. for a lot of it. But I think it's good. It helps that it, it's dark, so you don't see mm-hmm. a lot of the, the mm-hmm. outline of the special effect. Um, probably the worst bit for him is when he's right up on the Ghostbusters, and mm-hmm. you see you see the four of them in the same shot. Yeah, with yeah, yeah. Stay Puff's head. That's probably the worst that gets. Um, and all that stuff with Gozer, none of that. That 
that all that special effect, even the practical stuff, mm-hmm. just seems like completely disconnected from the whole rest of yeah. the movie. Well, that part, like they said, like the state how Stay Puffed kind of comes down the street. They said all of that is almost like frame by frame or line by line of the original script. So think about that. The last what ten fifteen minutes that that the part of the movie. That's what all of the original script was going to be like. Okay, so that so, makes sense to that. Yeah, but yeah, definitely would not have wanted that original script if Mm-mm. that's the the style. Yeah. that Dan Aykroyd was had in mind because it's mm-hmm. just it. Yeah, it's too sci-fi. Yeah, as I yeah. would say, I want to say like his original one was that there was no origin. It was kind of like they had been Ghostbusters for a while and they became where. It was so commonplace. They were like pest control. Like it's like yeah, oh, this that's is what the way we do. I gathered it. Yeah, yeah. And so then there's this new, bigger, badder, ghost thing that happens, and all these Ghostbusters from different galaxies all come together. So mm-hmm. it was a much, much bigger and broader story. But he also said, Ackroyd talked about that he's a very much a, a kitchen sink writer. He just throws a bunch of stuff in there. And then let somebody else kind of piece the things together and make it work. Like he just kind of throws every idea on the page and he's like, I'm expecting it not to work from the initial draft. I need somebody else to come in and kind of clean it up and make it a coherent story. So, so what about favorite scenes? Yeah, again, I think it's all some of the same. I, I love the, I don't know why it's such a short scene, but the staircase, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, that's a matte painting or yeah, there's a lot of matte it. paintings in this, but it's it's still a great scene. I love getting going to the lines. Vinkman saying, "Well, let me know when we're, we reach the twentieth floor, mm-hmm. and then I'm gonna, th- I'm yeah, gonna we'll throw up." up. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know that's one of my favorite scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, again, there's just so many yeah. of them. We'll eventually say the entire. We movie. will. We keep talking about stuff at the end. I was like, go back at the beginning. I love the test scene at the beginning with Vinkman and you know the the shock therapy. It was like, yeah. yeah, that's just... Especially when the one guy actually gets it yeah. right. Yeah, he's like, oh, yeah. so it's just not your day. It's just not your day. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, I love the one where he spits the gum out. He gets shocked yeah. and the gum falls yeah. out of his mouth. Yeah. Um, yeah, but even going back to the beginning, the really the introduction of Egon where Vinkman mm, oh, yeah. knocks on the desk. Yes, and he drops the book on it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Just, I'm, I'm yeah, like everything you. Everything about this there's, is good. There's so many great scenes. There's so much that that's just a lot of fun. So, all right, well, let's talk a few trivia things. Then we'll start wrapping this one up. The original script had a budding romance between Janine and Egon, but most of it was cut, cut out of the original film. The special edition DVD features a deleted scene of Janine giving Egon a coin for luck before he goes off with the other Ghostbusters to fight Gozer. The relationship between Janine and Egon was explored more in the real Ghostbusters cartoon, more so than in the movies. But yeah, because in the second movie, they, they play off of Janine and Lou. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I purposely didn't watch the second one before we recorded the episode because I didn't want to get the two movies. I didn't want to get them all blurred together in my mind. So um, they're still they're they're both great in my head. Yeah, so. exactly. While filming the final scene, the ending wasn't completely worked out. Reitman says that crossing the streams idea came up elsewhere in the screenplay prior to this, but using that to kill the Marshmallow Man came through working out the scene on set. Oh, that's crazy, because you would think that by mentioning it in the ballroom, yeah. that it was meant to be no. a plot device. Mm-hmm. So so they wrote it to be mentioned in the ballroom, but they had no intention to ever... Exactly. Like, when they got... That's crazy. Yeah, he said he remembered with them being 
you know, that was all on a big soundstage uh, in L.A. when they did that segment. And he was like, they were trying to figure out, we got to, there's got to be a way to defeat this that's going to that's gonna make sense. And once again, I think he talked about, like, they had a script, but it was almost more of an outline. Of course, because you're dealing with ad-libbing and stuff like that, so they weren't trying to be, you know, so line by line on the script. So, but yeah, so they came, they came up with that as a, as a way to kind of fix it. And once again, he said, he didn't remember who came up with that line or who came up with that idea. It just, it kind of happened organically. So a couple of, couple of them came up with it while standing it side by side at a urinal. (laughs) Yeah. Cause we all know that's what that means now. Of course, every guy (laughs) knows that. So sorry, ladies. Um, so then, they, so after that, I figured that out. I was like, well, let's talk about the marshmallow. So they actually used shaving cream for that scene with all the melted marsh, all the melted marshmallow. Huge laundry bags full of shaving cream were dropped on the people on set. So before the big drop on William Atherton, the actor asked Reitman if it was going to hurt. <laughs> and Reitman, Reitman simply said, "I really don't know." So yeah. they said, they well, actually, "At least he was on." Yeah. So they they actually tried it on a stuntman first. And said, no, you're not going to get hurt. So, uh, Reitman says that people have more of a problem with the limited amount of marshmallow on Bill Murray at the end than the fact that the Ghostbusters survived or the Marshmallow Man in the first place. Of course, the idea of Vinkman being covered much less than the other Ghostbusters was Murray's idea. On the opposite end, Aykroyd loved the shaving cream so much, he kept asking for more to be applied to him. So, <laughs> No, I like that too because it's very subtle. But mm-hmm. you know, Vink, you know, they're all asking if they're okay. Yeah, and you know, Vinkman goes, "I'm fine." Yeah, and then yeah. just starts to walk away. <laughs> and you look, uh, Dan Aykroyd, Ray gives him kind of a look, like, mm-hmm. "How did you not get covered yeah. in this stuff?" Yeah. Like, yeah. So I, well, I think he, it works. Yeah, he does come kind of out of a covered spot, like where, yeah. but. But when that thing explodes, I'm like, "There's no way they would have they would have survived that explosion on the top of yeah. the building." I was thinking the same thing when I was watching it, getting ready for this. I was like, mm-hmm. wow, that explosion shoot. How mm. did they survive that? Yeah. Uh, of course, I also question, how does Dana have Marshmallow on top of her head when they come out yeah. of the hotel? Yeah. Yeah. And she's wrapped in a different kind of, like, obviously they gave her some kind of robe or something, but she's in totally different clothes at the end when she comes down at the bottom. So I don't know if, yeah, we can speculate. I was going to say maybe, you know, Murray, you know, took some and put it in her hair to mess with her. That's all I could think <laughs> of. So, uh, but we kind of referred to this earlier, but the film was originally intended for an adult audience. The cast and crew were surprised to find that children loved the film as a fun fantasy adventure of scientists battling supernatural threats with cool backpack weapons. I and mean, that's why I loved it. A backpack that, yeah. that was connected to a gun. Sure. Uh, as we mentioned before, it led to the cartoon spinoff, The Real Ghostbusters in 86, and of course the sequel, Ghostbusters 2 in 89, which played down the original film's adult themes by alum- one of the things being eliminating smoking, because they all smoked in the first one, and they even talked about that on the on the commentary, that they made a conscious decision in the second one not to have them smoking in the, in the second movie. Uh, and I will say, one of my favorite scenes is uh, Aykroyd and the cigarette hanging off his lip. Yeah, one of the most iconic. Yeah. And he has gone on to say that that was not done with any kind of special adhesive. They plan- He planned it that way, but it just worked that it, enough saliva applied. It, it stayed on his lip long enough for him to get that scene going. 
Now, talking about the uh, the cartoon, I, I don't know what else you have planned for trivia. Are we going to talk about the the original Ghostbusters? I wasn't going to talk too much about it, but you you're, you're more than welcome to, to to wax a little knowledge if you got it. I mean, I don't have an awful lot. Yeah, but you know, there's a big talk about the fact that the movie almost didn't have the name Ghostbusters. It was going to be yep. Ghost Breakers, right? Um, and that was because there was a show from the 70s mm-hmm. called the ghostbusters um which starred uh forrest tucker uh better known from f troop um in, in which they were ghost hunters mm-hmm. um and it was this you know kind of like the um the a lot of shows uh kid shows there it was you know silly and goofy mm-hmm. and there was a gorilla that worked along yeah, with yeah, them i remember um but after the movie came out and you can watch the Netflix show to see how they finally got the the ability to use the name Ghostbusters. Mm-hmm. After the the movie came out, when the cartoon was getting started, Filmation, who had the rights to the name Ghostbusters, released their own cartoon. Mm-hmm. And I actually remember watching that cartoon yeah. as a kid. Yeah, yeah, Um, You know, where it was, it's kind of like a Scooby-Doo-esque mm-hmm. type show of these... Paranormal investigators driving around with a gorilla. Um, <laughs> and I always found it funny because one of the characters is named Eddie Spencer, which you wonder, Egon Spangler, mm-hmm. like, is there a relationship there? Right. Um, like I said, I don't know an awful lot about the actual, uh, you know, connections and all that, but I just... I always found it funny. I remembered that Ghostbusters. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, they come out with the one that's based on the movie, and it's called The Real Ghostbusters, <laughs> which I'm sure was a dig at yeah. Filmation's oh, of course. Ghostbusters. Of course. So I always find, find that funny once you, you know the actual story behind right. the naming. But I remember as a kid, like I didn't like that title because I was like, but I would think that the live action would be the real Ghostbusters and the cartoon yeah. would be the fictionalized version. So, but you know, they had to, they had to spin it how they could spin it and use the, use the title. But I wasn't a big fan of the cartoon. I think I remember oh, watching I it. I the cartoon. Yeah. I remember watching it, but I wasn't as big of a fan of it as I think I wanted to be. So, but yeah, I loved the cartoon, which led to the toys. Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. I had so many of the toys. <laughs> um, yeah. The, the cartoon, uh, as much as the movie is great, I think the cartoon is really what solidified, my love, love for, for it, yeah. the Ghostbusters, yeah, yeah. I was a little older. I'm a little older than you too, so I probably I'm, I might have I might have outgrown the cartoon. I wasn't as much into cartoons then too, so maybe I don't know. Yeah, late, mid to late eighties, that was prime. I'm trying to justify childhood for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> trying to justify it. All right, well, let's hit box office and critical reception and and close this thing out. So. The premiere of Ghostbusters took place on June 7, 1984 at the Avco Cinema in Westwood, California before its wide release the following day across 1,339 theaters in the United States and Canada. During its opening weekend in the U.S. and Canada, the film earned $13.6 million, an average of $10,000 per theater. It finished as number one film of the weekend ahead of premiering horror comedy Gremlins, which made $12.5 million, mm. and the adventure film Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which made $12 million on its third week of release. So talk about a good weekend at the movies. I know we talked about this during Gremlins, too. 
that you had Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom, Gremlins, and Ghostbusters, which all probably helped solidify the PG-13 rating as well, (laughs) if you think about it. The gross increased to $23.1 million during the first week, becoming the first major success for the studio since Tootsie in 1982. The film remained number one for seven consecutive weeks, grossing $146 million before being ousted by Purple Rain in early August. Huh. Yep. The film regained the number one spot the following week before spending the next five weeks at number two behind action film Red Dawn, which got the first PG-13 rating, and the and then the thriller Tightrope. I think that was a Clint Eastwood movie. Never heard of that. Yeah. Ghostbusters remained among the top three grossing films for 16 straight weeks before beginning to gradual decline and falling from the top 10 by late October. So it went from June to October. That's awesome. Wow. It left the cinemas in early January 1985 after 30 weeks. Ghostbusters had quickly become a hit, surpassing Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom as the top grossing film of the summer and earning $229 million, making it the second highest grossing film of 84 approximately $5 million behind Eddie Murphy's Beverly Hills Cop, which made $234 million, which was released in mid-December. Ghostbusters surpassed Animal House as the highest-grossing comedy film ever until Beverly Hills Cop surpassed it six months later. Which, yeah, I guess Beverly Hills Cop was still a comedy, but it's more, I would have put that more in the action realm than straight comedy. Yeah, it's just... That's the thing about when they give stats about a genre is there's so many movies that cross genres. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when I used to take my movie collection and I used to sort it by genre. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's what Blockbuster did. That's what, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> that's so, what the video stores taught us to do, right? Yeah. But I remember, like, looking at my roommates and just going, where do I put this movie? Like, do I put it mm-hmm. comedy or do I put... You know, if there's movies that you go, do I put this in action or do I put it in yeah. horror? Like, where? right. Yeah, so, I mean, a movie like The Others, like, do I put that in drama, mm-hmm. or do I put it in horror? Right. Uh, Thriller. So, yeah, I always suspense. have a, a yeah. hard time with kind of the genre sometimes, because I'm just like, eh. Well, that's just like this one. I mean, even though it's, this one, kind of, and it's interesting because it came out at the same time as Gremlins, it kind of falls somewhat in that same. Oh, yeah. I think Gremlins is a little bit more scary, but there's scary elements of this, but I think the comedy overshadows it a little bit more so than Gremlins does. Since we're on the topic, I just, I'm just going to throw this one out. What's your thoughts Go on Beetlejuice? It. More of a comedy or more of a horror? Because it's that same vein. It is. I wouldn't... I don't know if I'd put it in horror. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. <laughs> yeah, Beetle, Beetlejuice is really hard. Most Tim Burton films are kind of tough to like. Where do you put Edward Scissorhands? Is it a drama? Is it a comedy? Is it a horror? It's not a comedy. It's a dark comedy. It's not a comedy. <laughs> yeah, unpopular opinion. I'm not a fan of Edward Scissorhands. Oh yeah, I'm not a fan of Beetlejuice. So very oh, unpopular no, opinion. That's blasphemy. <laughs> All right, back to uh, Ghostbusters. So, Rotten Tomatoes, 97% on the tomato meter and 88% audience score. IMDb gives it a 7.8 out of 10 with a 71 on Metacritic. Um, I'm definitely Rotten Tomatoes audience score. It's definitely 88, maybe even closer. I don't think it's 97. That's not that great. Yeah, I'd go 
low nineties. Low ninety. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm fine with the upper eighties. I'm fine with the the eighty uh, upper eighty that uh, mm-hmm. Rotten Tomato has, but don't go into the seventies. No, it's definitely better than better than seventies. I think once again, I think the uh, some of the effects don't translate as well. Yes. But that still doesn't it still doesn't take me out of the movie like others would. Yeah. And I think because of the, the type of movie it is, you can they can get away with it more so than if it was trying to be a straight up, you know, horror or more of a scary movie. Yeah. I think it it wouldn't have worked as well. But with it being more on the comedy side, I think it we we give it a little bit more leeway. Yeah, and luckily, you know, again, talking about the balance between comedy and horror, it was able to walk that line. Mm-hmm. I, we're not going to get into this, but the remake, reboot, the mm-hmm. loose sequel, whatever you want to call it, with Kristen Wiig and um, Melissa, McCarthy. Melissa McCarthy and all them, I think it went too comedic, and mm-hmm. I think that's why it's not as favored, I'll say. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, I agree. And, I mean, yeah. and even the the ghosts were too cartoonish. Mm-hmm. Um, you know it it probably more it probably more looked like the real Ghostbusters cartoon than it did the Ghostbusters movies. Yeah, I mean yeah. even Kate McKinnon's character looked very similar to Egon <laughs> from the real Ghostbusters yeah. cartoon. Yep. Yep. So. Yeah, I didn't want to talk too much about the remake because in yeah, and I, and I I've seen it I've seen it a couple of times, and there's parts of it that I like, and there's other parts that just don't don't work. And yeah. I think once again, it, it's it's tough on a movie that you love so much. Like I'm I'm excited about Afterlife because it's a direct sequel, and it it seems to have at least from the trailers. It seems to have some of the the DNA that made the original great. And of course, you've got Ivan Reitman's son, who's directing it, and I think he co-wrote it. And he, it's something he's wanted to do for a while mm-hmm. because he talks about, you know, he's talked about he was a kid on set when they were making Ghostbusters one and two, so he was around them. That's part of those part of his formative years. So he's, it 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 is literally in his DNA of of to make you know to to be the one to make the sequel. So. I'm excited about it. I hope it's as good as 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 I'm expecting it to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we can only hope. But, but yeah. No, like I said, my my daughter is a fan of the the Kristen Wiig um, mm-hmm. version, the the more recent. But she enjoys this one, which is what I absolutely love. And mm-hmm. you know, you watch it. Yes, there's a lot of stuff that's that sets it in the '80s. But they did such a great job to kind of make it ti- as timeless as they could. It's timeless. Yeah. Uh, for yeah. the for the fact that it was made in the eighties, um, but you know Ruby uh, has even said you know she likes it because there's so much uh, there's so much stuff in it. Like I yeah. think that, that was oh, the yeah. way she she worded it was because mm-hmm. I asked her I said why do you like it so much? I mean she's eight, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm like why why you as an eight yeah. year old, um, you know thirty years after this movie came out, mm-hmm. you know what do you like about it? She goes I just like because it's got so much stuff. Which is exactly mm-hmm. what you and I have sat here talking about. Is yeah, yeah. What's our favorite scene? The entire movie. All of it. Yeah, exactly. Like, there's One so thing about many it, yeah. good things. There's not, to me, there is not a single scene in this movie that is your go to the bathroom scene. Right. You know. Yeah. 
there's not a single scene of this movie that you're not ups that I'm, I'm, I know I'm about to word this wrong, but <laughs> you would be upset to find out you missed a scene in this right. movie. Right, because you missed a line, you missed mm-hmm. uh, some element of the story. There's something that you missed, and that's what's so great about this about Ghostbusters. Yeah, because I was even going to say it's it's an hour and forty five minutes, which is in that kind of like you know sweet spot of mm-hmm. of movies, but it it moves along. There is no dragging. There's no you know there's no shot that's too long. There's no long expo- exposition that yeah. isn't necessary. It's like it. The jokes are fast. The dialogue is quick. The action sequences work. It's just it, it clicks along to to hold your attention well, and it's entertaining too. And like, and it does have a lot. Even that whole you know every great eighties movie has a montage. I've talked about this on the on the podcast several times. Mm-hmm. Even the montage is great with you know to seeing them taking care of the different kinds of uh, of ghosts and the you know the news clippings and all that kind of stuff. It it moves the story along without taking up too much time so uh it's great no absolutely it just it it moves along i will say though the the devil dog chasing lewis Mm -hmm. for me and this is probably just because of the speed of the rest of the movie it takes a little too long than it needs to in my opinion i I think when he gets to the the restaurant and he's beating on the window yeah and then he turns and you know, I guess you're seeing from the point of view of the devil dog at that point, and then he turns back. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he beats on the wind, and I get the little joke of everybody stops and turns. Yeah, uh, but I think that, and I, again, I'm just finding a, a, <laughs> a negative, um, right. other than the special effects. Uh, I think that part maybe something else could have been done to keep it with that same pace of the movie. Mm-hmm. I do think that part kind of slows yeah. down a little bit. I kind of felt like it was trying to almost be almost like an homage to like a typical scary movie where the creature is trying to, you know, it slows down for that kind of the creature is lurking in the background. But the one issue I have with that scene is, is the dog supposed to be invisible? Because people at the party saw it, but you see him bang on the window. You see the dog is coming to him. And then you see from the inside the restaurant, him being pulled down. down. No, but you don't see the dog in the background. He can't be invisible so. because when he runs across the street out of yeah, the hotel, yeah, yeah. everybody sees it. Here's my question: Is is it has it already picked up on his scent? Is it connected to him because he loses it because mm-hmm. he jumps over that uh, that rail before it even comes out of the the hotel? Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it's tracking his scent. I don't. I kind of had a, a thing with that of. You know, how does it know where he went? Because uh, it doesn't even pause to, like, go, mm-hmm. you know, smell this way, smell that way, where'd he go? Right, right. It, ta- it goes straight to where he went. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. That's Again, I'm just looking for the little faults you could probably yeah with some of the story elements. Yeah. I'm sure you I can don't say wanna, more, I, but I'm also sure that we're, we're very biased. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't want to dig too deep into the story because I, I, it, I, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but that is that is a good. It's a good question and a good thought because I hadn't thought about it that way, but yeah. But anyway, <laughs> Ghostbusters is great. Yeah, it's we great. love it. Hopefully, you loved it too. So, all right, I think we're gonna wrap this one up. Appreciate everybody for tuning in. So, Laramie, any final thoughts or anything you want to say before we wrap 
it all the way up? Uh, you know, I think I think I'm good. Uh, just again, don't cross the streams. And uh, if anyone ever asks if you're a god, you say yes. Exactly. <laughs> all right, everybody. Thanks, uh, Laramie, for being a part of this episode. Always a pleasure to have you. And go, definitely go check out Moving Panels. You know, you got some great episodes coming up. As we're, uh, you got any? holiday themed episodes we're moving into the holiday season oh yeah yeah we've got uh, some planned i'm gonna hit an episode of batman the animated series a christmas episode uh, that we'll talk about i'm also going to talk about a probably not very known to most people uh comic book character named jingle bell uh, who is the mm. teenage daughter of santa claus um oh, so very i'll cool. have an episode just telling about uh that character and uh giving you kind of the history and background of where that character came from. Very cool. Very cool. So check out moving panels at your favorite podcasting platform. And, uh, thanks again, Larry, for being a part. Thanks for having me. Always exciting. Yes, sir. We'll catch you guys next time. (laughs) Thanks again for listening to this episode of the 80s flick flashback podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, we have a few ways for you to do just that. One way is to send us an email to movieviewspodcast at gmail.com. You can also leave us a voice message through the Anchor app. You can find the link to leave a voice message in our episode show notes. Another way to reach us is through our social media pages. Search for 80s Flick Flashback on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, be sure to give us a five-star rating along with a stellar written review. And don't forget to follow us on Apple and Spotify as well. No matter which podcasting platform you're listening to us on, be sure to read the episode show notes to find more fun facts and behind-the-scenes trivia we just weren't able to fit into today's episode. Well, that's all for now. Join us again next time for another 80s Flick Flashback. You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go.